the face of banking is fundamentally going to look more different in the next five years than it has in the previous 500, maybe yeah. even all the way back to the Medici. But that shift is going to take place. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk to the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, David Ryling, and I am super excited today to welcome the one, the only Jason Hendricks as our guest today. And so, Jason, thanks very much for being with us. I'm not used to being on the other side of the microphone for something going on provoked. So this is fun and fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be great today. And, you know, for our global audience out there who may not know Jason, I know it's rare, but it could be possible. Uh, Jason is an expert in the field of fintech and all things fintech. Uh, he is an experienced fintech founder, venture capitalist, executive, board member, advisor, angel investor. You know it. You name it. He's there. Um, he is also currently serves as the CEO of Alloy Labs Alliance, is the managing director of Fintech Forge, and is the chairman of Fintechs, T-E-X, in Chicago. And lastly, on top of all those duties, as Jason just referenced, he is the uh, host on Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. And so, Jason, I'm going to just kind of dive right in. I'm excited to talk to you. My curiosity is kind of all over the place today. So I'm going to start with somewhat of a softball, and then we'll dig in from there. Earlier this week, FDIC Chairwoman McWilliams testified uh, to the House Financial Services Committee recently and said that rapid changes of the last year have amplified how critical technological innovation in the financial system is empowering people's lives. So FinTech, is it changing finance and banking in a good way? What do you see out there? Oh, I mean, it is definitely changing it. Can I stick with that one as the definitive? It is definitely changing. Now, is it changing for good? I'd say the answer is both yes and no and to be determined. Let me break that down. Where is it you know, working for good. One is it creates greater accessibility on an unprecedented scale, right? Um, Everything from if you look at how technology played such a vital role in the provision of um, the PPP, right? The uh, the global audience that was the U.S. government bailing out of small business. And so it really allowed community banks to be able to serve their communities in a way, you know, by using technology, you can't throw enough bodies at it. Um, it allows the you know provision of um, financial advice, right? sophisticated financial advice that you might not be able to get if you know you don't have that high level of investable assets. Where is it you know doing things that might be a little bit murkier? One is, and this is you know, let's start with the the malicious piece of it is one is actually is we've gone more digital. It opens up new vectors for fraud. And a lot of the movement of money in support of uh, everything from terrorism to, um, you know, illicit activities, you know, and that's definitely on the bad area. And then where I'd say we're entering into like the grayer areas is, you know, sometimes we're not fully understanding the implications of what's taking place, what's going to happen. Let me give an example. California recently ruled that one of the neobanks could not use bank in its name anymore. One might say, well, I mean, what's the difference? For all intents and purposes, what they're providing is a bank-like service. Does the consumer really care? Well, you know, the consumer doesn't care until they actually care and because they believe them to be a bank. But what are the full implications, you know, of that is now we're getting into the murky area. And so I'd say, you know, that's the area that I wrestle is how do we actually make sure 
that fintech is being used for good when the long-term consequences aren't immediately apparent in terms of what those implications would be? Yeah, and that's a great kind of holistic answer to it. And, and it's one of the, I think, issues that banks looking to partner with fintechs certainly have to wrestle with. Um, there is the good, and I can give you a statistic from the standpoint of Sunrise Banks in, in 2020, we originated over 307,000 credit builder loans to help people save and build their credit history. That's more than 3x what it was in the previous year in 19. But at the same time, uh, we have the systems both to handle the volume as well as the compliance oversight that's necessary. And uh, that's where it's really important to, if you're thinking about being, if you're a bank and partnering with fintechs, hey, the values alignment at the beginning is very important, but have those systems, policies, procedures, and the people to, to oversee it. Well, and can I build on that for a second? Here's one of the other beautiful powers of technology related to this. As part of Alloy Labs, we've partnered with a regtech company. And what the regtech does, several fold, but one of the, my favorite parts of it is they have developed a behavioral-based approach to measure and culture of compliance. Because you can have the best policies and procedures, you know, the, the most expensive law firm making them pristine that sit up on a shelf. But if your culture isn't right and that alignment from a principles, right? And I know you believe strongly at Sunrise in, you know, principles and alignment of vision and values. But how do you actually measure that without it feeling like, you know, oh, you just don't like me or just don't feel good about this? But in a quantitative, you know, think of it as it's almost like a personality test that organizations take. And you can break it down across you know, 13 attributes and seven outcomes. But that's without technology, you can't do stuff like that, right? The manual process, the digitization is not just about efficiency. It opens up wonderful new opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And while you mentioned Alloy Labs, I just want to bring this up to the audience as well. So let's. what is Alloy Labs? How would you describe so, it? We're a consortium of over 50 community banks and mid-sized banks that work together to drive innovation, adopt new technology, and make strategic investments. And part of the reason we've come together is these tend to be the more innovative banks that say, hey, you know, on our own, we cannot move fast enough in a world, say, to compete with a challenger bank that just raised $200 million in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? And yep. it's not just about keeping up digitally. We want to find ways to differentiate and better serve our communities. And to do that without infinite resources, we believe cooperating is the way to go. And yeah. so by working together, we can accomplish so much more and drive real outcomes for the customers and the communities, which is what we care most about. Yeah, and doing a, and a fantastic job. And I'd love to just riff off of that because – you wrote in an email to Alloy Labs member of Disclosure, Sunrise is one of them, um, about Jamie Dimon's 66-page letter. And there are two things in there that I just want to touch on. And one is the fear, I think, if I could describe it that way, that Jamie Dimon of Chase has of fintechs and of financial technology and that there's no speed fast enough. So let's just talk about the speed of fintech. Um, how do you frame that up for us? This, I mean, this goes back to some of the gray area. Part of my fear of the speed of fintech is going so fast, we're not always aware of the implications. But you know, I'll call out, and this might be on the bold and crazy side of things. But you know, when we look at what is the next five years going to look like, which you know, in fintech time is almost infinite space. 
But I think we are going to see a fundamental shift away from banking as we traditionally have thought about it. Now, I'm not saying banks are going away and they're all going to be, you know, be Silicon Valley and New York-based fintechs. I'm going to say the face of banking is fundamentally going to look more different in the next five years than it has in the previous 500, maybe yeah. even all the way back to the Medici, right? Um, but that shift is going to take place. And then before the fintechs, you know, and I started one of the first challenger banks in the world back in 2008, right, saying, hey, we're about to go, you know, destroy banking as we know it. You know, I think it's time is coming, but I don't think they should declare victory just yet, because I'd say in the next five years, in the speed of fintech, you know, um, Angela Strange and Andreessen Horowitz had wrote this great blog post around, you know, in the future, every company is going to be a fintech company. I'm going to go a step further and say 10 years from now, there is not going to be a fintech company because fintech is fundamentally going to go away that we're going to see embedded finance and embedded fintech in the experiences of what we do. What we used to call financial technology as a transaction layer is yep. going to be gone. Wow. So taking that line, if I can, and, and and right now there's probably a bunch of bankers who are losing their mind that are, it's like, well, how do I even participate in this and, and uh, be relevant? So one other thing that you wrote in the letter, which I really thought was insightful, was really around Darwin's theory and that fittest didn't mean the strongest will survive, uh, but it meant that Darwin meant that it was the fittest in terms of the most adaptable. So yep. Maybe it's not the big that eat the small, but it's the fast that eat the slow or something of that nature. Um, is that an accurate type of depiction? It is. I do need to give credit. The best part of that letter was actually written by our director of insights, Amber Buker, because she's a much better writer. And anything <laughs> you see or hear from me that sounds reasonably intelligent, it came from Amber. Um, and, you know, part of what we talk about in this evolution is often we think of evolution as a straight line. That's actually not how it works. You know, the, the famous picture, you know, of like the fish ending up on land and eventually the Neanderthal, you know, and becomes right. a human, cool. right? You know, it tends to actually, you know, while there is evolution that goes that way, it tends to happen in bursts, right? So think of what happened when the dinosaurs became extinct, right? Like there is this theory around, there are big bursts of change. It's very dramatic change. And it's those things, not necessarily the ones that were evolving on that straight line right. that are going to survive. It's the ones that actually most rapidly adapt to the new situations they find themselves in. And this is where banks actually, by the way, have a huge opportunity to participate because they have a lot of you know, real benefits to what they have. What The first of which is they actually have customers and revenues and profits. But if they stay stuck on this linear version of evolution, can I just get a little bit more efficient, grow a little bit more, and maybe I launch a digital bank, they're going to become extinct. Definitely. It's the difference, really, I think, of um, you really have to have that abundant mindset. It really doesn't do you any good to think incrementally, thinking exponentially, or just say, what does our bank look like 10 times the size? It makes you erase everything that you have and reconstruct it. So it's like the IndyCar of, of today. If you're not familiar with IndyCar racing, they rebuild the car every year because of technology and design changes. And so to be competitive, you got to keep changing. So with that, in that uh, kind of evolutionary spirit, I want to talk about 
the next generation of a banker. And that might only be in the next three years or five years as we use that uh, you know, evolution of man chart, if you will. So let's paint a picture for the audience. Uh, the next gen banker, who is she or he? You can pick a pronoun. Yeah. You know, what are their characteristics? Maybe where are they? What mindsets do they possess? What what brings a bell there? Well, the number one, and I've been beating this drum for a while, and I'm excited that at the banking schools that I teach at, um, first with Louisiana State University is now actually a required class, is the banker of the future, which I'd say bankers come in one of two flavors to get to the C-suite. They either come up through the lending, which I'd say is the most common, yep. or you know somewhere along the side of like the risk, maybe retail risk. But I'd say 85, 90% have come up on the lending side. The banker of the future is actually going to be a strategist. And they need to first and foremost be learning about strategy, both classic strategy and then forward looking and applying it. And you say, oh, you know, we already do strategy. You know, I had to take strategic planning back at, um, you know, graduate school of banking or, you know, we've got a strategic plan. It's required by our regulators. No, no, no. The emphasis is on plan, not strategy. And strategy requires understanding where do you compete? What is different about your customers? What are your strengths and weaknesses? And how do you actually leverage those to choose what you're going to do and equally importantly, not do? Because if you look at most banks today, regardless of asset size, regardless of geography, right? Like a bank in Asia, for the most part, looks like a bank in the US, looks like a bank, you know, different regulations, maybe different metrics around things, but they take in deposits on one side, they lend on the other and they conduct transactions. And regardless of size, we kind of do all things for all customers. That isn't gonna work in the future. We have to rethink who do I serve? How do I serve them? What's unique? Emphasis is unique competitive advantage in how I do that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think some of those characteristics in Sunrise really just switched to this. Um, we use a strategic foresight type of scenario plan. So if this happens, if that happens or this other thing happens, you have different views of strategy and they're always and constantly changing. So the ability to check and adjust and adapt as you go really becomes that strategic lens and in a quick one. It's it's a little uh, I always phrase it for our leadership team here to say, listen, you're now in the fashion industry. And it changes every quarter. We need a new strategic plan. And Except so, during COVID, in which case, like no one changed clothes. So you know, a little true. static. It changed the top part. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So a dynamic banker of the future, that's a strategist. Love it. So now let's maybe step back just a little bit and talk about, I, I want to talk about the trends happening in fintech, but I want to steer you a little bit. And because fintech from maybe my lens really exacerbated some of the socioeconomic disparities out there, both on the health side as well as financially. Where do you see fintech kind of weighing in on the maybe the social justice or the equality side and diversity, equity, inclusion? Is, is, there, is there enough activism there? Is there enough maybe uh, mindfulness? No, so we did a Breaking Banks episode on this last summer, kind of in the heart of this is should banks and fintech companies have to have a social mission. Yeah. And it was an interesting debate because, you know, some took the view that said, well, no, you know, that's really the customer's responsibility, not ours. But I would say if you boil it back all the way to the first principles, you have to have that view because at the end of the day, whether you're the bank behind the fintech or the fintech, when you are dealing with people's money, you are dealing with people's lives, 
And so that might not mean everyone needs to be involved in Black Lives Matter, but they do need to be involved in if I have someone who is black, their life matters in how I manage their money and create accessibility. And I make sure that there is no inherent bias in our processes that that is part of my responsibility. So you might not want to say, you you know, wave it in flags, but at the end of the day, you can't do away with this idea that we are a driving force in people's lives and we need to bear that responsibility. Yeah, definitely. Um, And it is coming from all sorts of angles. As being a CEO of a bank, it's uh, not only coming from our customers and community, but also our employees. And so, um, looking at every facet, every policy that we have to making sure that it is uh, equal and fair, um, just as a start, as a minimum, is really uh, what we're being held to. So now, Jason, I'm going to take a left turn on you because, you know, there's no conversation in fintech that's complete without a crypto question. It's a basic one today. Crypto, fintech, it, are they the same? Are they uniquely different, uh, separate and distinct? Where do you put crypto in, in fintech? I mean, today they um, kind of run in parallel paths, right? If we look at crypto first as you know something people invest in, that is a thing unto itself, right? And you, you know that cryptos arrived when um, back when we could travel. You know, at the end of 2019, two Uber drivers in a row asked me if I was buying Bitcoin, right? And I'm like, and they don't even know that like this is like the world I live and swim in, right? It's like, what is going on here? Um, <laughs> So I think as an investable asset, it's an interesting place. We'll see where it goes. I think it's actually done itself a disservice because the hype around investing in Dogecoin and Ethereum versus Bitcoin debates and what's Elon said lately, that hype has kind of distracted from the underlying potential for what it can do. But I think where crypto and fintech begin to merge is when we look at crypto as a means, not an end, to what can it accomplish. And I think a lot of that is less as a currency in more as, you know, using it as a means of transaction, both on the blockchain and smart contracts and distributed ledger. I don't think everything needs to be on the blockchain, but it is certainly the hype of the blockchain has made people more aware of, hey, this idea of distributed ledger has been around for a while. How come we're not using more of it? But the ability then to use, you know, crypto to extend the boundaries of things and invent new things, I, I think is, is interesting, but we're still in its infancy. And as long as we're still debating is Bitcoin overvalued or undervalued, you know, it's distracting from the true um, potential. Yeah. And there was a recent development, I think this morning that uh, the U.S. Treasury came out with much like currency restrictions, like you would file a currency transaction report at 10,000 U.S., um, you would have to do the same now with Bitcoin. So if your transactions in Bitcoin total 10,000 or more, uh, there's known what as a CTR uh, that's going to be required. So it's interesting how it's being framed in the currency space uh, at, at this point in time, you know, to be continued, I think. Well, but, you know, if you look at some of the, you know, what makes a good currency, right? Well, one is it's accessible ubiquitously. Well, right. so that's not any one of the cryptos yet. What else makes it a good currency is it's of stable value. I hate it when the price of the pizza I ordered a half hour ago doubles by the time it arrives at my door, right? Yep. Even worse with Amazon. Um, you know, and 48 hours later, that just became a very expensive toothbrush. Exactly. Um, so we're going to have to solve for some of those things. Yep. And when we do, 
I think crypto as a currency will enter more of the mainstream. Yeah, I agree. And again, in its infancy, finding its way. So now time flies. I got one last question for you, and I want you to, and you don't even have to zoom out. You kind of started here with the life cycle of fintech, but it seems like, uh, take your 10-year horizon, where are we in the fintech life cycle if you had to look down from the planets uh, onto fintech today? Are we at the beginning, uh, dawn of a revolution? How would you describe it? You know, so I had the benefit of taking a course on punctuated equilibrium with Stephen Jay Gould. You know, just hate to admit, 25 years ago, um, maybe a little longer than that. But this idea of evolution being in fits and starts, I would say if you look back, you know, this is only the beginning of a phase of punctuated equilibrium. If you look at the challenger banks, let's talk about you know just the banking side of it since this is next gen banker. Yep. If you look at the challenger banks of today, they're actually relatively disappointing in my view because 2008 you had Perk Street, you had Bank Simple, later Simple, followed by Move-in. We were standing on the shoulders of the folks at Hire One and Smarty Pig that were solving yep. different problems. Are they better, you know, user interfaces? Yes. Have they solved fundamentally different problems over that, you know, nearly a decade? Well, actually over a decade, the, the next 13 years is disappointing that like we're still at the surface layer around UI and UX and what you can do with it. But I think that's changing. Like from the puncture, that was actually just revving up the engine to where we can go next. Yeah, and I I hear you loud and clear on this. And I it it um, in your in your letter to the Alloy Labs member that the the function around speed is we're just starting. Um, you can't really think about whether you're ahead or behind. You just need to keep going and moving forward and strategically what niche you might play the best in and and be differentiated in. But you got to keep moving and you got to keep progressing. And it's not linear. Um, yeah. I don't know for my audience how we can get that through, but it is fits and starts more exponential and more lumpy than you think. Well, in there's an important part related to this. So I would say there's 90% of banks when we talk to them about their strategy, technology, or innovation or otherwise, and they say we're more of a fast follower. There is no successful strategy as a fast follower if you don't actually have momentum. Being right. in momentum requires movement, right? And experience, because by the time something becomes ubiquitous enough that it's obvious that that is the winning strategy to follow, if you're only pumping up the tires of your bike to go join the breakaway, it's too late. The Peloton is so far past you and it's only getting faster right. that you need to be moving and experience because it's as much that muscle culturally compliance technologically that needs to be built up to be adaptable, the strategic muscle of adaptability. Because if you're still following the strategic plan you wrote five years ago, like the regulators might be happy that, hey, you're right on the plan that you prognosticated, right. you know, all those years ago, except you probably become irrelevant because the world has zigged and zagged 10 times over. Exactly. So Jason, I'm going to, I'm going to say thank you on that standpoint. We'll leave our audience with, in my opinion, really take a look at your strategic risk in your organization and maybe personally as you look at your career in, in banking and in fintech uh, that strategic lens is super important so jason thanks so much for being on the next gen banker as always great to talk to you and get your insights really appreciate you being with us today thanks for this episode's musical feature 
we are showcasing Benjamin Tucker. Benjamin is a St. Paul-based artist originally from Iowa City, Iowa. And in the vein of Michael Kiwanuka, Jason Isbell, John Prine, and James Taylor, his latest release is Such Is Love. Here's the title track from that release. There's a name, there's a word, there is hope I have heard. I don't know what will be, but I know. Stronger than the fear of death Love is better than life itself It's a fire that does not consume It's a spring of water that will never fade That was Such Is Love by Benjamin Tucker. Find more of Benjamin's music on Spotify and on BenjaminTuckerMusic.com If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email nextgenbankerpodcast at gmail.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast, and we'll see you soon.